Good to see everybody who braved the weather uh, to be here um, to, uh, to celebrate uh, with the Lord. So because uh, the hearing of the word and the proclamation of good news is a communal act in which we all participate, I say, the Lord be with you. I appreciate it. Let's pray. Father, uh, we do pray for your illumination uh, to be here, that you would shine your light into our hearts, that your glory would be made known to us in the face of Christ. Help us to hear what it is you're saying to your church and to respond in faith and obedience in Jesus' name. Amen? Uh, Today, we proclaim the good news that as we take up our cross and follow Jesus, God shares his glorious presence with us in the face of Christ, inviting us to participate in his divine life even as we suffer. We proclaim the good news today. That as we take up our cross and follow Jesus, God shares his glorious presence with us in the face of Christ, inviting us to participate in divine life even as we suffer. So today is Transfiguration Sunday. Uh, There's an icon uh, that we have displayed up here, and this sermon is kind of going to be a a walk through the icon. Um, Icons are not painted. They're called, they, they, they are written. I don't know if you guys knew this. But uh, when, when somebody is creating an icon, what they do is they call it they're writing an icon. And when you look at an icon, you're not uh, just looking at it, you're reading an icon. So icons are written and read. And so I want to try, try to help us read this icon together um, uh, about the transfiguration. Christ is revealed in this moment as the radiance of God's glory, the image of the invisible God, uncreated light emanating from his face into our hearts. But what's this event all about? It's kind of weird, right? Did it ever strike you as like, what is happening on this mountain? Like, what is going on here? Is this a miracle that's supposed to dazzle the disciples? Are they supposed to think, oh, wow. Or, you know, is something happening to Jesus that they weren't supposed to see? You know, it just sort of happened. He's going to have a conversation with Moses and Elijah, and he's like, oh, the disciples are here. Like what, you know, like a weird fluke. Like, what is going on? Uh, in this event. Um, And we want to say today that the transfiguration isn't something weird that happened to Jesus, but rather it's about the disciples having their eyes opened to something that was true the whole time about Jesus, that they didn't see. They They weren't aware that this is who Jesus was until their eyes were opened and they could see what was really real. They were being granted a vision into what was real about Christ that they didn't, real, they didn't really understand. They didn't really see yet. And so it changed the way that they saw him and everything else from that point on. Does this ever happen to you? A transfiguration vision, a moment of transfiguration? Like, I know, like in the Harry Potter books, transfiguration is actually changing something from one form to the next. Do I have that right, Harry Potter fans, right? Okay, so you change from, like, one form... Th- I was hoping. Uh, you change from one form to the next, but that, that word is not actually how this event happens. So the, the word is actually, it's a difficult word uh, to try to understand what's happening here because Jesus isn't changing from one thing to another. He is being revealed as something that he always is. It's just that people can now see it. Does that make sense? That's what's going on here. And so uh, this happened to me this morning, um, a moment of transfiguration, not with Jesus, uh, but with my front steps. Um, I, uh, I, was up, I was up early because I needed to work on this sermon, and uh, I'm hoping it doesn't go too long. 
I didn't get a lot of time to work on it this week. Um, so I was up early <laughs> to try to work on this sermon, and then um, Sydney came down the stairs with our, with our puppy. Um, and, you know, the first thing that needs to happen to the, with the puppy in the morning is that the puppy goes outside, you know, to, to do its business. And so I was like, oh, and, you know, I already didn't want to go outside uh, with the puppy because I was like, I got to work on my sermon. And so, but here's the puppy and she's pretty cute. And so, so I was like, all right, we got her you know, all set up. And then I, I opened the door and I remember looking down and thinking, oh, it must have rained because it looks wet. The front steps look wet. And the dog, you know, normally just sort of runs down the steps and gets right to her business. And so I just, you know, kind of trotted down the steps. And you can guess what happened, right, because of the uh, ice storms. I just went, like, it was, if you could have taken a slow motion video of it, we'd probably make a million dollars on YouTube because people would watch this over and over and over. America's Funniest Videos or something. But I just, I just took a fall. And I slipped and I went backwards and I was in the air. I had this moment of transfiguration. <laughs> <laughs> where, where the steps were transfigured before me. And I realized, that's not water, that's ice, right? And in the midst, that, that was a moment of transfiguration. They were transfigured before me. It doesn't mean that it changed from water to ice. It means that my eyes were opened in the middle of my fall, and then I hit my back on the steps uh, and, uh, you know, panicked. I was like, I broke my back, shoot. Like, that's, I have to preach today. Anyway, weird thoughts that go through your mind, you know, and I'm like, oh, it's all over. And then I was like, oh, never mind, I can move it, it's fine. So anyway, so I'm stiff, we'll see how stiff I get, but the, but the steps were transfigured before me, right? We have these, uh, we have these moments, right, where, where we realize something, um, oftentimes about somebody else that we know, where they're transfigured before us, we see something new about who they are, Right? We see something new about their presence uh, to us and who they are to us. It's an epiphany. That's why we celebrate this in the season of epiphany. Um, and uh, I was just reflecting on this and thinking, you know, uh, my dad. I had several moments like this with my dad. Uh, my dad, like when you're growing up, kids, you could probably relate to this. Like when you're growing up, your parents just seem sort of like normal people. Like they're just like, well, it's just my dad. Like whatever. He's a, he's a pretty normal dad. That's kind of how I thought about my dad, you know? It's like, what, whatever, he's just, he's just my dad. That's kind of the only way that I related to him was how we interacted as father and son, right? And so he's just my dad, nothing really special. He was a medical doctor in a town of about 10,000 people in southern Minnesota where I grew up. Um, but I can remember these moments of transfiguration where I was able to see his true self, if you will, in a new way where something that he did uh, revealed something about his presence and who he was to me. So, for example, I remember um, after dinner uh, one evening realizing that during the season of his life, my dad would quietly, after all the dishes were put away, my dad would quietly go down, sit on the couch in the living room right next to this lamp, and he'd open his Bible, and he would just read it quietly, and then eventually he would close his eyes and begin praying. He was praying in tongues. I hope that doesn't weird anybody out. But he was praying in tongues. My dad was a very rational person. But I remember this, like, just this revealing something to me about him. Like, wow, this is a man who cares about growing in Christ. This is a man who is engaged in some sort of spiritual activity that I don't really understand. <laughs> I don't know what's going on here. But it revealed something. Does that make sense? He was transfigured, in a sense, before me. 
Um, I remember once on a family vacation, um, we'd you know, drive in our minivan, and we'd drive all over the country. We were, we were, this was like a three-week vacation. My dad was taking a little sabbatical uh, from work, and we, we drove out to the West Coast. And I remember um, driving in the car, and I was, I was in the, you know, the middle seat, and my, my dad would always play this song. I think it was by Twyla Paris. Anybody know Twyla Paris? It was, it was, and I, I didn't really like it. You know, I was like, oh, why do we have to listen to this song again? Ugh, you know, like I, was, I wanted to listen to, I can't remember what I was listening to at the time. Some of it you probably couldn't play in the car uh, with, the, with, the, with the kids, you know. Um, but, um, but anyway, I, I remember um, not wanting to listen to this song, but then realizing as I looked up into the front seat, that my mom and dad were holding hands. My dad was singing the song, and he was crying. He was weeping. And I found out later that, um, that a baby had died. He, he was a medical doctor. He delivered babies. He loved delivering babies. And I found out later that a baby had died kind of on his watch. And he had made a call, and it ended up not being the right call. And he got sued for it eventually as well. And so I, I remember realizing later that that was what was going on for him in that moment, a moment of transfiguration. I saw something about the man he was. Um, there's, a, there's a few other moments. Um, I remember uh, I, I was starting to get into leading worship, and we had this worship concert, me and the rest of the youth kids, you know, and we were, uh, we were leading these uh, energetic songs about singing and dancing and, you know, the freedom that God has given us in Christ and all this stuff. And uh, there was a little kind of a dance party happening, it was mostly young people just dancing in the front of this kind of worship concert thing that we were doing. But my parents were there. There's a bunch of people from the community there. Um, and I, I remember <laughs> just looking over. I was, I was leading worship, and I remember looking over and seeing my dad just, like, start skipping into the dance party part of it. it was like, raising his hands and, like, singing. This is, this is my dad, right? He's a, he's a medical doctor in a small town. Um, he's got this reputation to uphold. And I remember just it was a moment of transfiguration. I was like what is he doing? What would prompt, like, wow, there's something about, there's some, it was a moment of transfiguration. There's something about him I didn't realize happening there. Uh, he died when I was 25. He was only 50 years old. Um, and uh, I remember another moment uh, of transfiguration when I saw the people who came to his funeral. This, this place was packed. There were so many people in this church. Uh, it was just standing room only. And hearing the things that people said about my dad, during that funeral and afterwards, to this day, people tell me things. But that, again, was a moment of transfiguration when I realized, wow, he really meant a lot to the people that he served in his life. Moments of transfiguration. I thought of, I thought of those things as I was thinking about what this must have been like for the disciples to go up onto the mountain and see Jesus transfigured before them. This new realization about the implications of this Messiah they were following thinking, wow. And I think we need something like this when it comes to Jesus. Because we all have these filters. We all have these things in front of our eyes. We have these uh, images and these ideas about what faith is, about who Jesus is. We have them all, and we've collected them all, and we see, we kind of have to try to see Jesus through them all. And we need these moments of transfiguration where Jesus comes to us, and he shows us who he really is. He shows us what's really good. Because we've got ideas about what's good. We've got ideas about how God works in the world. We've got ideas about what we should do uh, during Lent. We've got ideas about how to practice our faith. We've got all these ideas about these things, but they're not necessarily Jesus' ideas. They're not necessarily who God uh, comes to us um, as in the person of Jesus. 
And so uh, the transfiguration is one of these moments. And rather than try to explain, I'm, try, I'm trying not to overly explain what's happening, I'd love for us instead to, um, to enter into the story. This isn't a story that's dissected and analyzed very well. It's a story that's better prayed and experienced. And so that's why I've got the icon up. That's why I'd like for us to just kind of use it as we talk briefly about the transfiguration and hopefully perhaps ourselves enter into a moment of transfiguration uh, today, this morning. Because today we do proclaim this good news that as we take up our cross and follow Jesus, God shares his glorious presence with us in the face of Christ, inviting us to participate in a deeper way in his divine life, even as we suffer. So the icon is, of course, of this moment. Um, Jesus, it says, after six days, took the disciples. He led them up the mountain, a high mountain where they were all alone. Now, mountains are the meeting places in, the, in Scripture. Mountains are meeting places with God. God meets people on mountains for some reason. And so uh, this isn't random. Jesus isn't saying like, oh, I'm super tired. We should climb a mountain. Um, He is doing something intentionally with his disciples because he knows they need this. He leads them up the mountain. He says, I want to show you something. So he takes Peter, James, and John. You see those three disciples in the icon there. These are the three kind of inner circle disciples. These are the people who are at um, uh, some of the most intimate events of Jesus' life. He takes them up the mountain. because he wants to show them something. And Mark says that on this mountain, the gospel writer, Jesus was transfigured uh, in front of them, in front of the disciples. His clothes become gleaming white, um, blinding white, this glorious light seeming to emanate from uh, his body. And so that's what we see in this icon. We see Jesus, white, dressed in white, with, um, you see that oval kind of thing in the background? That's called a uh, mandorla. It's called a mandorla, and what it represents is, if you can imagine two circles overlapping, the shape they make in the place they overlap is that mandorla, and that's intentional. You see this in a lot of icons of the transfiguration. Does that make sense? Can you see the two circles? So what it represents, that mandorla in the background, it represents the overlap of heaven and earth. In Christ, heaven and earth meet. They're connected in the incarnation. And so what's being revealed here is this connection between heaven and earth that we have in, in Christ. And you see the beams of light kind of emanating out from his body. These are the, this is the glory that the disciples see. Um, uncreated light, a lot of the ancient uh, church fathers talked about it as. This is the glory of God, which isn't given to dazzle the disciples or kind of, even though they, are, they do seem dazzled and afraid and, and freaked out, right? They're all falling all over the place. Uh, in this icon. Um, But what's happening here is God is sharing his self, his presence with the disciples, and that can be an overwhelming thing. In those moments of transfiguration with my dad that I talked about, uh, there was a presence. I was able to see him. I was able to experience his presence in a new way, and it, it always felt overwhelming. Presence typically feels overwhelming to us, even if it's just two people really becoming present to one another. It's a scary thing. We don't know what to do with it, oftentimes. So God is sharing himself with the disciples in this icon. This is a revelation of the Trinity. Um, the, the sun is on the mountain. The cloud comes, which is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, and the voice comes from the cloud. So this is very similar to the baptism of Christ, where 
You've got the voice, you've got the sun in the water, and then you've got the dove. It's an epiphany of Trinitarian reality. Um, and it's a revelation of Jesus as the unique son of God. That's what this icon shows us. And so you've got Moses and Elijah on either side there. Um, got Moses on the, on the right. You can see with, he's got the tablets, right? The, the lawgiver, the great lawgiver. Elijah is on the left, the great prophet, or the first prophet, basically. Uh, represents the prophetic ministry of uh, the Old Testament. And Moses and Elijah, um, uh, church father Chris Ostom says that these represent the law and the prophets, which is the totality of the Old Testament, sort of coming here to be present in Jesus. Uh, and they both, uh, both Elijah and Moses experienced visions on mountains, and they, and they represent the living and the dead. I thought that was interesting, right? We just read about how Elijah never died. He was just taken up into heaven. Moses died. But now he represents the living and the dead, the law and the prophets here together with Jesus. And if you see the disciples, again, falling all over themselves, Peter is there. He's kind of raising his hand. He's asking the question that we read about. Hey, I've got an idea. We'll talk about that in just a second. This is the inner circle of the disciples. They're always present at these important moments. Uh, Jerome points out that Peter, uh, these, these are the only disciples that have nicknames in the Gospels. Peter is called the Rock on whom the church is built. Uh, James and John are called the sons of thunder. And uh, these are the disciples who are there with Jesus. James is the first to die a martyr's death. John is called the beloved disciple. Um, and they're unsure of how to respond. You can see they're just falling kind of all over themselves, um, you know, asking dumb questions and, <laughs> you know, uh, covering their eyes. Um, and so you can see Peter there on the left, you know, raising his hand and asking the question. And, you know, the gospel says, Jesus, you know, this is awesome. You, Moses, Elijah, this is incredible. I think probably he's thinking the end has come. Moses, the great deliverer of the people, has come to deliver the people again. Elijah was prophesied to, he's going to return before the end of all things. And here he is with this one that I've just confessed just before this. Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah, the Son of God. It's happening. We should set up tents. We should set up three tents. Uh, to, this is maybe the headquarters for the end of the world. Like the, It's happening, right? So Peter, Peter is excited, uh, and he says, this is, it's happening. Uh, I've got an idea. Let's set up tents. Um, and Mark, the gospel writer, apologizes here for Peter, uh, doesn't he? He says he didn't know what to say. They were so terrified. It's like he's, he's like, you understand. People say strange things when, um, when the, uh, Jesus is transfigured before them. Um, and so whatever the case may be, whatever Peter's reasons for blurting this out, it was wrong. It was the wrong idea. And I think it's interesting to think about why was it the wrong idea to set up tents. And there's a few reasons for it. Um, just before this, in the gospel story, Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah. And then Jesus uh, begins to then tell tell them, this is, this is actually now what must happen, right? Uh, the Son of Man must suffer. He's going to be rejected by the, the scribes and the law, uh, the teachers of the law, right? He said, and he's going to be killed, and then he's going to rise on the third day. And Peter, Peter takes him aside and rebukes him because he said, look, look Jesus, I just confessed you as the Messiah, and now you're getting all negative on me. That's, how, that's the only way Peter has to interpret what Jesus is saying. He said, oh, Jesus is getting depressed. He got off his meds or something. Like, he's not feeling well. Jesus isn't feeling well because he's, he's getting all negative. He's saying, oh, this isn't going to work. 
When in actuality, Jesus is saying, no, this is how it works. We go to Jerusalem, I suffer, I'm killed, I rise on the third day. That's how it works. And Peter's saying, oh, he doesn't think it's going to work. And so he takes him aside and rebukes him. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have the things of God in mind, but only human concerns. Peter doesn't get it. The disciples don't get it. And so Jesus goes on to say, if you follow me, you have to take up your cross and follow me. Which, that wasn't a cute piece of jewelry in that day, right? It was, it was more like Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you need to strap yourself into the executioner's chair and let's go. Like, that's the image. The cross was not a pretty piece of jewelry. It was a brutal execution instrument. It's kind of weird that we wear them around our neck in some ways, right? It's like wearing a little electric chair around my neck. It's an execution instrument. And so Jesus is trying to help Peter and the other disciples understand, this is how the kingdom comes. This is what must happen. The Son of Man must suffer. But Peter doesn't want that to happen. Peter wanted to settle down into the security of this temporary bliss and also thus prevent the going down to Jerusalem to the cross. Peter is trying to control and manage this event. He's trying to make something happen out of it. He's trying to make a practical decision about what might be good to do next. But his, his, his way of deciding what's good to do next is all rooted in this theology that says that the Son of Man must not suffer. He should not go to Jerusalem. He should not be rejected. He should not be killed. And who knows what he's talking about when he says rising from the dead? Who knows what's going on there? And so his ideas are all wrong about what needs to happen. Peter doesn't want to take up his cross and follow Jesus. He's trying to prolong the glory on the mountain, saying, we got to skip it. We arrived at the moment of glory, but we didn't have to suffer. This is great. Let's set up tents. Let's make this a permanent situation. Cloud cover. I think this is why the cloud comes, right? God's like, all right, they still don't get it. And so the... <laughs> And so the cloud comes and the voice comes from the cloud and says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And then the disciples realize that it's only Jesus. Moses and Elijah disappear. It's only Jesus. I think I would be impressed if I was Peter. I think I'd be impressed that Jesus was hanging out with Moses and Elijah. Right? Wow. I knew he was the Messiah, but I didn't know he was this cool. Right? But actually, the, the voice flips it on its head and says, no, that's actually not. Uh, I know you've got ideas about how the kingdom is supposed to come. I know you listen to the law. I know that you've heard the prophets. I know you've got interpretations about how all those things. I know you think you understand how God works in the world. But this is my son, whom I love. Listen to him when he tells you things like, if you want to follow me, you take up your cross. The son of man must suffer. Listen to him, even when it contradicts everything you thought you knew about how God works in the world. Listen to him. He's the one with the words of life. So Peter's mistake was wanting to prolong the event, but his mistake was also that he wanted to set up three tents, thinking that somehow Jesus had, been, had gotten an upgrade in his reputation by hanging out with these two. But the voice comes and says, no, actually, Jesus alone is now everything that I have to say. God is saying that. Jesus is what God has to say. So no matter what you've inherited, what theology you've, you've, you've grabbed hold of from wherever it came from, Jesus is what God 
has to say. Listen to him. This is my son. Listen to him. And Peter and the other disciples needed to hear this because uh, they had these preconceived notions, just like we do, about how God works in the world, about what we ought to be doing with our life and with our time. And dying at the hands of the rulers in Jerusalem was definitely not part of the Messianic program, according to Peter. But Jesus is what God has to say. The Son of Man must suffer. The glory on the mountain goes hand in hand with the suffering on the cross. They go together. You can't have one without the other. The disciples constantly throughout the Gospel of Mark want the glory. They want to make Israel great again. They want, to like, they, they, want, they want to kind of be the greatest in the kingdom. They want to gather up. They want to do all the amazing. They want power over demons. They want a reward for serving Jesus. They want to sit on his right and on his left, but they have to learn to suffer with him. They have to learn to go to Jerusalem. They have to learn to go to the cross. And the good news for us today is this, that as we take up our cross and follow Jesus, God shares his glorious presence with us in the face of Christ, inviting us to participate in this divine life, even as we suffer. They go hand in hand. And you can see this, we don't have time to get into it, but you can see this in the way that um, there's parallels between this transfiguration moment and the moment of crucifixion. There's parallels. And Mark is drawing those parallels with intentionality to say, the glory and the suffering go together. You don't get one without the other. This is the way that the kingdom works. This is how God works in the world. You don't get to avoid the suffering. But you get to go through the suffering knowing that the transfigured reality of Jesus is with you. Those are our two temptations in life, I think. One is the temptation of sentimentality, where we want to prolong the vision. We want to set up tents. Mary wants to hold on to Jesus, doesn't want to let him go, right? We try to freeze-dry the manna. We, we, like, we want to grab the, the cool thing that just happened and just hold on to it. We want to avoid the suffering. That's the temptation of sentimentality. The other temptation is if, you know, we've got a distaste for that or we realize we can't avoid suffering. The other temptation is to despair, self-pity. We embrace the suffering, but we forget the transfiguration. We forget the glory. We forget that we don't go through suffering uh, like other people do, but we go through knowing that resurrection is on the other side. In a way, this is a prefigurement of Jesus' resurrection given to the disciples because he knows the path they are about to walk is going to be difficult for them. And he wants them to have in their minds memory, the transfiguration, to remember, wow, I don't know what is happening right now. Jesus is being crucified. Everything has gone wrong. But remember the moment? Remember the mountain? And it gives them strength to hold on. And it can give us strength to hold on as well if we have these moments of transfiguration. So just like the disciples, we need to learn how to listen to Jesus instead of the interpretations that we've received about how God works in the world. We were told, hey, uh, if you want to influence culture, you need to do whatever it takes to get into positions of power. But Jesus lets the politicians play their games, right? And instead spends his time among the poor in the backwater towns, knowing this is how the world changes. You know, we're told if we pray hard enough and perform well enough, God will come and rescue us out of this terrible world and we can watch the sinners burn from our perch in heaven. But Jesus, in his love for the world, goes back down the mountain into the chaos of ministry gone wrong, and keeps walking towards the cross, embracing suffering and death rather than dealing it out. Jesus is what God has to say. Listen to him. 
The path of life is the path of the cross. It's the way of the cross. So these visions of glory are necessary for us. We proclaim the good news today that as we take up our cross and follow Jesus, God shares his glorious presence with us in the face of Christ, inviting us to participate in divine life even as we suffer. Even as we suffer. This is, this is why I have to pray. Prayer for me, it used to be hard for me to pray, and it still is in a way, um, but it's almost like survival for me now. <laughs> um, it's just a situation of life, I guess, right now. But I need to see Christ transfigured. I need to remember what this is all about. But my temptation is I want to stay there. I just, you know, once I'm in that moment, once I'm seeing Christ, I don't, I don't want to get to work. <laughs> I don't want to do any of that. I uh, want to stay here. But I know I, I know I can't. I know that part of it is embracing the path uh, of suffering that, that's in front of me. So Lent starts Wednesday, okay? We already mentioned this. It's Ash Wednesday. We're going to do a 7 p.m. Uh, joint service here that lasts until Easter. And it's fitting, I think, that we have uh, this transfiguration to uh, lead us into Lent because in many ways we're following the journey of the disciples after the Mount of Transfiguration. We come down the mountain. We come into situations, ministry, chaos, suffering, and we're moving towards the cross with Jesus during Lent. Uh, we're going to be doing various things. Uh, we remove Alleluia from our liturgy. We don't say that during Lent. Um, we're going to add a few confessional elements. We'll be practicing fasting, prayer, generosity, and confession together. Um, but as we begin this journey with Jesus to the cross, uh, we, we need to have this, this vision before us, this transfigured Christ showing us his glory, showing us who he is. Because by all appearances, Jesus' path was not the way to become Israel's Messiah. <laughs> but the memory of this glory would sustain the disciples through the crucifixion. So listen to him. Even when all common sense seems to indicate uh, otherwise, better ways of getting things done, listen to him. Even when it leads to suffering and you can't see light on the other side, listen to him. So to respond today... Um, I want to do something uh, a little bit different in that um, we're going to sing a song uh, that kind of talks about the transfiguration. And I want us to just spend some time during this song. You don't have to try to figure out the lyrics or figure out the words. But during this song, just spend some time looking at the icon and asking God to speak. Um, asking God to reveal himself. Allow him to speak. Let's spend a few moments on the mountain with the disciples before we go down into the valley of Lent. Um, what is God saying to you that you've been resisting? That's a question I've been asking. What are the little hints that he's been giving you that, uh, that you've been sort of conveniently ignoring? What step of obedience have you been avoiding? What word is he giving you that seems to go against common sense that you don't know what to do with? So let's take a few minutes as we listen to this song, reading this icon listening to the song and listening for God's voice among us and then we'll pray together. When he took the three disciples to the mountainside to pray his countenance was modified, his clothing was aflame. Two men appeared, Moses and 
Elijah came, they were at his side. The prophecy, the legislation spoke of whenever he would die. Then there came a word of what he should accomplish on that day. When Peter spoke to make of them a tabernacle place, a cloud appeared in glory as an accolade. They fell on the ground. A voice arrived, the voice of God, the face of God covered in a cloud. respond in prayer as well. Um, we'll go to the section that says prayers for others and for the world. And uh, 
We'll be praying. Uh, and as, as I say, uh, Lord, touch us. Let's all respond by saying and transfigure us as Christ is transfigured.